Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. To give you a little bit of background about how I met Lucy, so uh, that's a TV show, isn't it? Uh, how I met Lucy. So we were in, um, we had a seed camp in Dublin. Um, and it was, I don't know how many years ago now, four years, uh, three years what? ago? No, two. Really? Yeah. Wow, time flies. I think startup years are dog years. You got to multiply by two. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was a while ago and um, she was presenting there. I was really impressed by what Bridgeview was trying to achieve. Um, having been myself an international student brat, uh, I'm originally from Honduras and studied abroad because pretty much if you're going to study abroad, if you're, if you're from Honduras, right? So the thing was that at the time, uh, she wasn't in Dublin, that's just where we met, and then she came to join us here at Seacamp, floor above. And as all the companies that we invest in tend to be quite early, I thought one of the things that we'd do is explore those early days. So with that, Lucy, first of all, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Walk, walk us through why you started Bridgeview in the first place. Yeah. Um... So, I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question and, and obviously one I get a lot. And what's really, really exciting is we're, well, we're, we've been interviewing pretty extensively for the last couple of years as we've been growing quite quickly. And I love uh, when I talk about the problem behind Bridgeview because people just unload their, their stories on me. So I think, you know, we, we very much take the view and, and I took the view when I was starting to think about the problems in the sector that schools should be delivering two fundamental services if you're stripping out all the fat um, one of those services is that they should be providing and imparting learning and optimizing learning outcomes. And the other part is that they should be guiding students as they're making really critical, life-changing decisions from, let's say, the age of 14 to 24 that genuinely impact the rest of their lives. And whilst one of those two uh, parts has had a lot of people and time and energy and attention and education technology investment actually go into that part of the equation. The other part, namely how do you as a very young person plan uh, your next few steps in a way that makes sense and enables you to pursue opportunities that are right and appropriate for you, has actually never changed and is still largely a kind of paper and pen experience within schools. In the UK we call that careers guidance, internationally they tend to call that sort of university uh, preparation and kind of college counselling. So. I experienced the problem myself and it became uh, sort of just a kind of constant pain point that I was, I was hearing about continually. Um, and so I actually founded, before I started Bridgeview, an offline admissions consulting business to help families um, and individual students and provide them with a very bespoke service, helping them navigate this, this sort of transition into higher education. And it was kind of shocking to me that actually, if you look at the numbers, the amount of money spent on outside guidance and career coaching and counseling at that very young age is close to $100 billion. Um, so there's something really wrong uh, when, when people are needing to go around the school to actually solve that problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think maybe one of the things that might be useful for the audience is for you to sort of walk through where Bridge you sits in the ed tech landscape. Yeah, Because right? you're only one part of it, you know. Yep. We're investors in other companies like Revision App that are mm -hmm. doing more of the helping of the learning. Yep. But maybe if you can like do the value chain type thing where, where do you sit in that, in that life journey of, of somebody learning? 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, and actually, it's one of the it's one of the the reason it's an interesting question is because we're we're quite used to hearing about kind of traditional content based plays within education. So um, Coursera and these sort of massive online open courses are starting to challenge, um, certainly on the content side, the idea that learning needs to exist exclusively within an institutional environment. And that's certainly been a big trend. There's some success stories in that in that sector. Um, and then you have kind of the what we think of as really kind of the B2B SaaS um, businesses that are companies like like Bridge U that are specifically providing a a solution to secondary to, to schools, in our case secondary schools, but that could be um, K through 12, so kindergarten through you know year 12 or year 13 in this country. And those companies are also providing services to higher education. So those operate a little bit more honestly like the B2B SaaS businesses we're used to hearing of, like the likes of Salesforce, um, in that they're providing an institutional benefit to kind of optimize learning or to enhance some part of, of the delivery system of learning. Now, one of the things that I think is certainly quite interesting about BridgeU is that we're, we're actually almost kind of creating a slightly new category, which is and which is which is exciting it's it's bold it's attracted i think great talent and great investors but it's also very very challenging it's very difficult to i think um to kind of make good on, on quite a big vision, which is that we really want to be using data science and, and taking the trends in the landscape of post-secondary and, and kind of the early career um, landscape and, and weaving that back and making that highly relevant to decisions that kids are making at 14. Um, so we kind of almost bridge the gap between, I mean, we do literally bridge the gap, but we also kind of sit between um, categories of, of ed tech and that we're not entirely in K-12 and we're not entirely in high education we're really focused on sort of leveraging technology for the purposes of more intelligent education at early career decision making so if, if we take that analysis and say fine you know bridge is serving a very specific group of people could we assume that in your view I mean this is kind of a biased question but in your view that's the key area for value chain and, and value creation in the next five years or are there other areas that you say you know what if I were an investor for a day ed tech really needs and will likely generate quite a bit of value in this other bit of the value chain. Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, like across the entire value chain, I mean, coming off the back of raising a Series A, one of this is a this is a dialogue I've been having kind of constantly, which is, and I think one of the one of the really exciting things about education and sort of leveraging technology and data and all these sort of innovations to to better service the education market is it is the largest global market. So four and a half trillion dollars, and only about three percent of the services and products delivered in that spend are currently digitized in any format. So genuinely, if you're if you're speaking to an edtech founder, there's a ton of room for innovation. I think within each of those those categories. I think what's a little bit more challenging about ours is that we are sort of partially creating a category. So we're not providing, you know, another learning management system. We're not providing another management information system. We are trying to fundamentally change how students, parents, and teachers think about higher education and early career decision making. Um, and that's why I think, you know, one of the one of the challenges of actually selling Bridge U into schools is it's really quite a sort of it's a it's a very vision oriented pitch. It's really kind of come on this mo this movement with us and join us in this forward thinking development and be a part of you know the, the product journey along the way. But I mean, if if I keep on pushing on that question, yeah. I could I could maybe invent a category. You sure. know, uh, pedagogy optimization. You know, where AI is helping people learn better. Yeah. You know that kind of stuff is yeah. the kind of stuff that you would expect potentially would drive value. Definitely, and, and we'll so, just, yeah. But, but if, if we were to take that, 
the temptation would be that bridge you could potentially do that five years from now. And so when you got that first round of investing or when you were just working on your product, how did you manage to deal with that as a bias that people were probably yeah. looking at it when you were pitching? But also how did you how did you manage that? Well, I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, this is one of the challenges and, and the, the sort of, it's one of the challenges of working in the education sector if you're building technology for education in that you are largely dealing with multiple stakeholders always. And so actually part of our seed camp journey two years ago when we got in was we, you know, we were not clear and certainly I wasn't clear because I was coming from actually the consumer side where I had provided a service to ostensibly students and parents. So it was a kind of a service oriented at consumers. And so we built the initial version of the platform and I actually outsourced the development of that initially um, bef just before getting into Seedcamp. And that was a very consumer oriented uh, vision for a product. It was very heavy on the student um, experience. And what we started realizing when I started out going in and sort of managing to get meetings at schools was that they said, this is great. It seems great for the student, but what about me? I'm the one who has to spend all this time managing documents, checking personal statements, submitting documentation to, you know, in some cases, universities around the world. So from spending time with some early sort of, you know, who, who became our early adopters back then, they were really kind of guiding us on, on certainly me, on, on my thinking around how we could actually bring this thing to market. They, that changed my orientation dramatically, which was actually, you may have a, an end uh, user who is a teenager, but you need to provide an institutional value for the school because that's the buyer of the software. And I, you know, I think that is a genuine challenge in ed tech. I mean, the great thing is if you get that right, you provide incredible value for students, for parents, for senior leaders within schools, um, and for educators who are managing and supporting the guidance process. It's very difficult to, to get rid of a product like that. Mm, but even the way you've just dissected it, the temptation as a potential investor in those early days, that that's not good enough. Sales cycle's too slow. Maybe that's not the most valuable bit of the value chain. Walk us through, you know, you raised mm. a, quite a substantial seed round at 1.5 million. Walk us through how you reconciled those early days with yep. an outsourced platform with kind of maybe some relationships there on the school side, mm -hmm. talking to all these investors who probably want a bigger vision, a more yep. uh, a clearly monetizable one perhaps with yep. a faster sales cycle. How did all those things come together into a pitch that got you 1.5 million? Yeah, so so actually, I think Seedcamp was a, a, an extremely useful um, series of months, and it was meant to be three months, but we insisted on sticking around for six months until we were kicked out, if I if I remember. Um, and one of the reasons it was so useful is is well, obviously, absorbing a lot of the the, the kind of the peer challenges that were going on amongst the the fellow founders who were part of the program at the same time. But I mean, I think thinking through some of those challenges and actually just starting to engage with investors for the first time when we got into Seedcamp. Back then it was a different format. You know, you all pitched to investors and you had a sort of slightly different interaction with them, I think, over the course of the, the Seedcamp program. And I started having some of those conversations quite early with investors. And from from those, those early engagements, I was able to actually gain a sense of their biases. So what we did over the course of the next several months, and their concerns were, you know, is this going to grow quick enough? Everyone loves to love education, but investors need some real proof that you're not going to caught up, get caught up in some of the traps that, that you mentioned. So is this going to move fast enough? Is the market large enough? And I can talk about how I think we've continually done a very good job of that. Um, is there proof of commercial traction? So what we ended up doing, um, at that, that time it was myself, um, my CTO, my head of sales, and Jay, our, uh, our designer, in Seedcamp, we said, all right, we have 
not that much money. We have about six months of runway. We are going to be laser focused on proving out that these things are not going to um, impede our progress. Meanwhile, and so anyway, I ended up going out and sort of starting to have a few conversations. Within about three months, we ended up signing quite a few schools. And again, it was small numbers at that stage, but you know, it was one school one month, you know, two schools the next month, four the next month. And I think certainly in my early conversations with investors and when you're raising a seed round, really the question is, can you get a bit of traction and prove that this thing has legs? Similarly, I think in my investor sort of when I started to go out pitching investors in sort of January of 2015, we then closed the, the seed round um, over, the, over the summer. I made sure that I knew preemptively what would be their concerns. And so market size has always been an issue with, with ed tech, especially if you're selling to schools. Um, and I knew the numbers like inside out, back to front. And it, I made it very, very difficult for them to poke holes in, in, in my argument. And we also intentionally launched a product in the UK market at the same time that we launched in international. So we have schools in about 42 different countries now. We did that very intentionally with the view that we wanted to have build a really ambitious tech, technology product, but we also wanted to become a very big business. And we knew that, you know, I knew if, that if we were going to the type of investors I wanted to raise money from, we'd need to prove that out. Okay, so that, that's how, kind of how you dealt with some of those biases, but you still went through some amazing war stories. I remember being on the phone, dealing with some of the questions about investors offering all sorts of funny things and yeah. funny terms and everything. Maybe, how many of you here are fundraising at the moment? A few of you. So maybe you can share some of those early war stories for, from your seed round. Yeah, um, I think I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to do so. So I think, I think what's really, really challenging, I mean, I feel resilience is one of the, the, the key traits of, of, uh, of a founder and the, the characteristics of an early, early team as well. But I think one of the really hard things is when you are, you know, when you're super early, there's a few of you, you're very idea stage um, and you're trying to raise, you know, what now feels like a little bit of money, but back then seemed like an extraordinary amount of money. If, if anyone shows any interest, it's, it's, I think, quite hard. And certainly I found it very hard to not pursue that that opportunity um and i think and i think what's really hard is now that i've been fundraising for a few years and we've just we're closing in the process of closing our a round i have a much better sense for the signals that an investor is going to dig around and 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 certainly wants to, to hear what your thoughts are on the market but i have a much clearer sense of all right this is the line they are showing me you know, they're continually asking for more information, right? This is now the fourth conversation we've had. And certainly, I mean, when you're a seed stage business or a pre-seed stage business, you know, there should be a very small list of items that an investor needs to see to write you a 25K check. Um, and I think I went through a process with a few potential investors where it was just this continual drawn out process. And what I know now and what I would have done at this stage is I would have just cut them off. It's a waste of your time and your energy. Um, and, you know, fundraising, you really need to run like a process. It needs to be like a, a ship where you have a list. Everything is very kind of clear. You treat it like a CRM effectively. And I think back then, you know, and especially when you're in that early stage and everything's so exciting and you feel so much passion, uh, I think it's very easy to kind of get a few, get a few like nods and feel like this is going to happen for me. Um, so I think that certainly from my perspective, I think the learning around the behavioral signals has been, has been really key. We did also have an investor that I'll talk about a little bit more offline, but put me into quite an inappropriate situation, like certainly as a, as a female, but generally as a a human being. I think what's really hard is is to be able to really know 
why you're doing what you're what you're doing. And actually, it was actually um, a couple of weeks ago at um, the Harvard graduation, and Mark Zuckerberg was the um, was the speaker. And I was sort of working away, and there was really just one thing he said that really uh, sort of struck me. He said something that people don't know um, about the very early days of Facebook is after I left Harvard. He moved out to San Francisco. I had a, you know, a, a small management team, and, and someone made a bid to buy us. And he said he was, his vision for where the business could go was, was so much greater than what, what the offer was on the table, but that every single member of the management team within a year had left because they fundamentally disagreed, thought he made a huge mistake by not selling the business back then. And, you know, obviously Did you get an acquisition offer you didn't tell me about? Entirely. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but I think I think that really struck me because I was just thinking this man like stood his ground, you know, and, and he really stuck to his gut. And frankly, if you're going to go on this journey, it's very, very hard. And I think, you know, your your instinct is a really key thing. And certainly in those early days of Seed Camp, when we got a few sort of slightly sharky uh, or kind of interesting proposals, I'll say, from investors, I think it was really kind of it was it was really my gut that was like I can't articulate entirely why, mm. but this is not right. And I, you know, and, and the team were really supportive and saying, well, let's let's we have three months more of runway, so let's let's go for it and let's be laser focused on execution. And then three months later, Octopus said, you know what, we're going to do this, and they wrote us, you know, quite a sizable um, term sheet for a seed round. Mm. So I know that we're going to be talking a little later about your Series A, yep. and so presumably a lot of those lessons learned you applied to your Series A. But before we do that, I want to get to revisit uh, something you mentioned earlier, which is your international expansion. So for those of the, the founders here that are thinking about maybe their first international expansion, mm. some, some companies are easier to think of immediately as international plays. Others, perhaps that require partnerships or distribution channels, it might be a little harder. But I think on a general basis, one, when is the right time to expand internationally? What are your thoughts behind that? And then two, how did you do that whilst at the same time scaling your employee base? as quickly as you have? Yeah. Um, it's a good question, and I agree completely that it, it, it totally varies by industry and by company and, and, and vertical. So um, as I mentioned, I mean, the, the intention of the BridgeU kind of core software as a service, careers guidance, you know, service-driven uh, platform is ultimately to be, you know, the, the, the product that every child in every secondary school is using to inform their higher education and early career pathways. Um, and as such, we've designed the product, and this has, I think, been quite key to our growth, in fact. Uh, not like a lot of ed tech companies are designed, which is very inextricably linked with, linked with local curricula, but we actually sit on top of curricula. So um, we happen to have gravitated towards certain types of curriculum, but there's nothing, for instance, that would prevent us from being an appropriate product for you know, the Chinese national curriculum. So we decided, uh, what, what you know, thinking of international what would be a sort of easy uh, sort of first dip into into those waters and for us it was English medium international schools which operate you know their English medium of instruction uh, those, those kids are tending to progress to similar destinations to to the local schools in the UK that we we support and service and so what we did is we initially signed up you know and we didn't spend a lot of money on this but we signed up a few we signed up and presented that and sponsored a few international school conferences and from there, um, we were able to start building uh, sort of clusters of interest around the world. Now, after we started to do that and we realized that the unit economics didn't continually make sense to, to fly out to Hong Kong or to fly out to China or, or to Bangkok every time there was a big conference and you wanted to do, do a roadshow and visit, you know, 18 schools in the subsequent three weeks, 
um, we modeled out uh, the cost of opening a Hong Kong office. And by this, I mean literally one day in March of last year, I said to my board, maybe we should have an office in Hong Kong. And they said, okay, we'll model it out, come back to us. And by the next board meeting, it had been totally signed off on. Um, and then I flew out there, ended up hiring someone who's... Um, whose wife teaches at international schools, but he's American, lives in Hong Kong, has worked in China. So he was really kind of excited by the prospect of, of being a part of the, the opportunity, but also had local roots, which has been really, really key for us. We've then seconded someone else out there because it's quite an exciting opportunity to say to one of your team members, you know, you've done this extremely well here. We'd love you to be a part of, of, of building out our, our Asia-based presence. Um, and so I, I think we've done it in a very stepwise way. It's happened over a relatively short period of time. But certainly I think I would, I would not advise anyone to do it unless they, they had been there, spent a lot of time in, in the, the relevant locations and actually really developed quite a sophisticated understanding of the market. The places, the times when I think this doesn't go well, is when there is this sort of, you know, top-down sense that we should move, we should have a presence in India, we should have a presence in China, is what I hear kind of constantly. And you know, I'd I'd been personally to China, I think, eleven times before we then decided to open up a Hong Kong office to service that customer base and to expand more. Now, it's great how you got to explaining the reasoning behind an office. Uh. But managing an office that's abroad is an entirely different thing. Absolutely. And not only that, hiring people and then getting them to sync up to the culture that is based somewhere else is an entirely different thing. And for those of you that are interested in this particular subject, yesterday I published a blog post uh, after interviewing several other founders that had expanded their companies. And it goes through five different points about how to scale your company. And one of them is how to get the culture down and then communicating it as part of an onboarding process and then delegating to employees and teams to give yeah. them the independence to operate. And with the time zone, surely you need to give some level of independence to the Hong Kong office. So walk us through how you're scaling your company. I know you're supposed to hit, you're supposed to hire another 15 people in less than three, four months between now and you know when your goal is. Yeah. So walk us through kind of how you're thinking through that process of onboarding them, training them, giving them independence, and then managing a remote team. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment because I think what 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 can happen very naturally when you're a small cluster of a few people through until even I think sort of when you get to sort of 2025 is actually that culture is sort of just bred into the into the operations of the business. You you know everyone relatively well. Um, there's free flowing conversation. Typically, you're in the same space, and so I think the sort of cultural the transfer of, of that cultural piece. And, and also communication, I think the two kind of go hand in hand. One is who do we want to be and how do we build out the culture and how do we attract people who are similar to us and pass on a similar set of values. But I think the other piece is just as important, which is how do we continue to grow as a business and, and retain really valuable communication across the business. Um, having a, a office abroad, especially in a time zone which is sort of eight hours away from the UK, is it's really challenging and I think you know, the board wanted me to go out there and launch the office and be a part of building out that, that initial team. And so I ended up doing that. And I went to Hong Kong for about three and a half months towards the end of last year, um, which was great because I think I was able to, to sort of share with them a lot of, well, a, a lot of what, what we stand for in, in the UK office and certainly the kind of, I think, the way that we want to operate, the way we want to behave, um, some of those kind of more culture-focused, I think, values. But then what ended up happening was I lost a lot of really valuable contact with, with the UK base. Um, and this is when you get to a point where I think you realize that 
you can't be two places at once. And then I think your point about having to actually delegate um, and create sort of that 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 responsibility and that execution kind of more more at a distance to you becomes really really critical. Um, I think yeah, I think it is one of those challenging things, and certainly one of the things I want to focus on a lot more because we are at that size, thirty people, soon to be sort of hopefully forty forty five by the end of the year, where I think you actually have to proactively make effort to define and redefine. Um, the, the culture of the business and, and who you want to be and who you want to be going forward and and actually the process around retaining um, that culture and similarly I think on the communication side I think it becomes it's a real it, it was a real shock to me where suddenly we got to a stage where I'd speak to people and say oh yeah you know that deal we recognize they'd be like I have no idea what you're talking about where we got to a point where you know what I knew wasn't what they knew and I think those are those are just very real growing pains. I feel like they're very Series A growing pains, to be honest. Um, but they're 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 some of the challenges we're focused on right now. So, on the topic of Series A, walk us through what it took to get to where you are today in that Series A raise. How were the questions fundamentally different, and how was the experience fundamentally different based upon what you learned during the seed raise? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think again, this probably varies quite quite significantly in, in terms of the business model that you adopt. So we were a software as a service business and we were going to be measured always by you know the benchmarks that venture capitalists have in their minds or publish on their medium blogs or whatever they do um, about what are what's the appropriate sort of benchmark for, for a company kind of reaching that stage. And it's really their attempt at uh, kind of creating a, a sense of what product market fit looks like. So I think that's the that's really the kind of really big, big, I think, change between when you're trying to raise a seed round. It's really convincing investors you have a really strong team, um, initial team with the right expertise, the right domain knowledge, and, and the kind of gumption to really execute and give this give this a real go. Um, of course, then they have to believe in in, in, in the sort of early version of, of the product. It helps to have some initial traction. But I think back then, they're, you know, they are seed investors really feel f fundamentally focused on um, the kind of vision and, and, and the potential. I think as you head more to Series 8, I mean, certainly it becomes a lot more, I think, about the numbers. Um, but I was actually, to be honest, I was a little surprised by how much the vision piece really was the difference between having people say, you know what, we're behind you. This is what we would do in the next three years of Bridge You and really kind of commit to to that to that experience of kind of where we can go and where we take the business. Um, you know, I think the the sort of numbers piece almost kind of gets you the door the door opens at that stage. And then I think it really does it, it at least for me, it really still came down to, you know, we've 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 managed to grow at this pace, we have this traction, we have these numbers. But we're also realizing these other opportunities that will actually spin out of what we've currently created that are quite sizable and very interesting opportunities. Hmm. Well, it sounds like for the most part, that's now mostly wrapped up. Is that the case? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. And um, I guess you're also continuing to hire. So for those of you that are in the room that are, yes. want to work for Bridgeview, I'm sure Bridgeview staff is happy to take yeah, your questions. Yeah, we have four members of my team over here, so they can give you the first interview. <laughs> um, so two last questions yeah. before we wrap things up. Um, the first one is, we know that you're very passionate about female founders and that you'd like to see more female founders. Tell us more about what you think the ecosystem could do 
to facilitate that? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a really good question, and it's actually one that I think relates closely to, to one of the things that we see and we observe and actually within BridgeU that becomes a part of our pitch. So just to give some like technical context, one of the things that we do because we believe it's fundamentally um, better for decision-making processes is, is we, we have a series of predictive algorithms that analyze the student as they progress through the BridgeU experience and we actually then score them on a variety of metrics and, and match them with a range of courses and programs that are best fit for them on, on a variety of different metrics. We estimate their chance of acceptance and and then their chance of kind of thriving at that institution, feeling like it's an appropriate fit for them on kind of non-academic um, uh, criteria. And one of the things that I think is really key for that is oftentimes um, the sort of there are there are gen there's gender bias that occurs kind of way earlier than you know than my age, and and oftentimes at at school and within schooling environments and obviously culture and, and sort of background and family environment plays a huge role. But one of the things that I think that I that I really think is quite exciting about what we do is you may be uh, a 14-year-old girl who's, who's very talented at, 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 at maths and, and statistics and some of these things, and you may not know that that would mean that you'd potentially be a great candidate for a computer science or a mechanical engineering degree. So one of the things that our program actually does is, is almost try and take out sort of some of the bias from that process. And I think the reason I say that is that you know a lot of the teachers we engage with um, and the faculty we engage with really do start seeing girls you know opt out of this this process um, of of self-selecting themselves for certain pathways um, that otherwise would potentially lend themselves well to becoming an entrepreneur or becoming a, a developer or, or frankly even honing your skills in the way that the market you know need needs skills to, to be honed um, so really kind of I think you know. I think there is there is a number of things that kind of can and should be done at, at you know throughout the, the schooling age that I think would really better prepare um, you know girls for for really having the confidence and the belief, perhaps sometimes in spite of of bias, um, to be able to to kind of to pursue those pathways. So I think I think there's that. The other thing I, I, I certainly believe in, you know, I think my, my team is a reflection of this, is we, I mean, in our, you know, our management team is now almost entirely made up of women. And we don't, we, we do not have a admittedly equal gender, gender ratio at Bridgeview, but it's a hell of a lot closer than most tech companies. And I think it is, it is continually, um, you know, shocking, but, but really pleasantly surprising to me, the number of people who cite being a part of a community that is, is a tech company, but it's balanced, it, it, it values diversity as one of our kind of core core um, values, and I don't think that that's ever been stated out loud. It's just materialized in that way, and I think certainly having a number of sort of strong, strong, strong women be at be at the forefront of the business has just actually attracted um, some of that talent. And we've had that from from men and women. You know, we've had men from you know deep tech engineering environments who said, "Yeah, well, like it would be nice to see a girl once in a while." You know, I mean, who can blame them? But um, so I think that that idea. I mean, people talk a lot about role models. Um, but I think that that concept really has a lot of legs. Well, to some extent, this question has an easy answer, which is almost kind of the same answer you just gave right now, but maybe there's another one that you would like to give. It's a question I ask a lot of podcast interviews, which is we look back now at slavery and think, oh my goodness, how did that happen? How did we even accept that? In 20 years' time, what will we look back on to what we're doing today where we're like, how did that how did that happen? How did we let that happen? You mean besides uh, the UK leaving the EU? <laughs> Could be. 
Um, no, I mean, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a very broad question, Carlos. It is, but, it is very broad. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I certainly think there's a, and it's, it's been really interesting because I've actually been, I was in Hong Kong. I'm a, I'm a US and UK citizen, right? So double whammy from, the, from a political perspective from the last 12 months. <laughs> um, but I was actually in, in China and in Hong Kong when the UK referendum happened and when Donald Trump got elected. And it was, it was really, I mean, it was fascinating to me because on the one hand, I sort of, as a, as a person who's, who's grown up and spent most of my time in, in Western environments, you know, I was sort of like, the sky is going to fall down. And of course it was like, no, this is China. This is, this is actually the center of of the globe. And so that was kind of a really fascinating kind of repositioning of, of my own sense of where the center of gravity should be. Um, but back to your question, I think there's a lot of things that are going on now kind of politically, I think in particular, that then influence you know, the budget that, that venture capitalists obviously have to invest in, in European businesses and that have sort of a, a range of knock-on effects that feel like they're fundamentally moving away from tolerance and inclusion and some of these movements and these dialogues that a lot of people have been trying to have for, for the last couple dec decades, which, you know, I just can't imagine we won't look back in 20 years and say that was, that was moving backward, not forward. What were we thinking? Well, with that, we're going to finish the official part of the podcast. So let's give a round of applause. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. And leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.